0: missed two consecutive Sunday evenings in our study of Paul's letter to the church at Rome. And as a result of that, uh, I'm having some bit of trouble with my memory in terms of what we covered the last time. I looked at uh, some of folks' notes uh, hoping that I would get a complete uh, report, but they were derelict in their their (laughs) note-keeping, Rebecca. And uh, and so the bad news is that I've spoken so many times on this doctrine of justification and I do forget what I said when and where. So without intention there may be some repetition this evening as we look together at the third chapter, but if there's any portion of Romans that uh, would justify repetition, it would be this section on the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Now, uh, having said that, tonight I'm going to be reading from chapter 3 and beginning at verse 27 and reading through verse 31. That's a very short portion of the epistle, but I think that it's important enough to spend uh, our whole time on it. So, With that, I would like to ask you to stand for the reading of the Word of God. Where is boasting, then? It is excluded. By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law? Or is He the God of the Jews only? Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. What you've just heard is not the opinion of a first-century Jewish scholar, but the veritable Word of God. Please be seated. Let us pray. Father, we understand there is no more important question and we can ever wrestle with, than the question, how can we who are unjust be justified in your sight since you are perfectly just and perfectly righteous? We rejoice that you indeed are both just and the justifier of those who come to faith in Christ. Be with us now as we continue our study of this doctrine of justification. Amen. I do remember this, that in our last session I talked about the tremendous importance of our understanding of the doctrine of justification and that it was the pivotal issue in the 16th century Reformation. I mentioned to you that Luther declared that the doctrine of justification by faith is the article upon which the church stands or falls and is the article upon which we stand or fall. I mentioned that Calvin used another metaphor, that of a door on its hinges, saying that justification is that upon which everything in the Christian life hinges. And I mentioned an observation of what I have to call early J.I. Packer. In which he used the metaphor of Atlas holding up the world, he said sola fide, or justification by faith alone, is the Atlas that carries everything else in the gospel upon His shoulders. If Atlas should shrug at that point and the doctrine of justification by faith would come crashing down, so the whole of the gospel would crash with it. I also mentioned the importance of that Latin phrase that Luther introduced, simul justus et peccator, that we are by faith at the same time just and sinner. And that's about all I remember that we covered the last time, and so if I do further repetition, it'll be with my apologies, except that repetition is the best way to learn. So let's pick it up at verse 27, where Paul asks a question. He says, where is boasting then? And he gives a strange response to his own question. And it is a response, beloved, that we need not only to understand with our minds, but we need to get it in our bloodstream that it must penetrate the deepest core of our being, because this question and its answer here, you know, determines our attitude before the graciousness of a sovereign and holy God. And so when Paul says, where is boasting, his answer is emphatic. It is excluded. I know we live in a culture of pluralism, and relativism that hates anything that smacks of exclusivity. Nobody likes to be left out. Well, in this case, it's not people who are being left out, but what is being excluded and left out of any consideration is boasting. And the boasting that is excluded is any boasting that any human being would have in the presence of men or in the presence of God whereby they brag or bring to consideration their own merit, their own significance, their own achievement as contributing in any way to the ground of their justification. Now this again touches the eye of the tornado of the 16th century Reformation because so much of what was at stake in that controversy had to do with the relationship of works to faith. I mentioned, I think, before already that the word alone became so much a part of the controversy because. The Protestant Reformers were saying that our justification is not merely by faith, but it's by faith alone, that our justification is not only by grace, but it is by grace alone, that, this, that the salvation of our souls is not wrought merely by Christ, but by Christ alone. Now that word alone, again, was so much as a part of the controversy. And often in today's culture, and given the history of conflict since the 16th century between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism, many times Protestants in their critique of Roman Catholics distort, make make, uh, caricatures, and in fact slander the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. And it goes something like this, we believe that justification is by faith they believe it's by works, we believe it's by grace, they believe it's by merit, we believe that it's by Christ, they believe it's by our own effort. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Roman Catholic Church and every one of her definitive uh, doctrinal declarations have insisted, particularly against the rank Pelagianism of the early centuries, that there can be no justification apart from Christ. There can be no justification apart from faith, and there can be no justification apart from grace. The Roman Catholic doctrine of justification insists that justification comes through Christ, by grace, and with faith. What is missing, of course, from their formula is that all-important word alone, because for Rome it's always... Christ plus us. It's faith plus works. It is grace plus merit. Now, here's what I don't remember whether I went over before, but in the sixth sixth session of the Council of Trent in the middle of the 16th century, which was an ecumenical council like Vatican I and Vatican II, in which Rome met with their great theologians, in response to the Protestant Reformation and gave their definition of justification. And in that, they spelled out the importance of faith, where they said that faith is necessary for justification. Now, let me take a moment to explain the difference between a necessary condition and a sufficient condition. A necessary condition is a condition that has to be met for a desired effect or consequence to take place. You all know that if you want to build a fire in the fireplace, if you have a fireplace here in Florida, that you need the presence of oxygen for the fire to burn. In fact, if you have a fire that is burning and you want to quench that fire, You can, if it's contained enough, you can cover it with a blanket, stop the source of oxygen from the fire, and the fire will go out because oxygen, or the air, is a necessary condition to have a fire. However, it's good news that the very presence of oxygen does not meet the criterion of a sufficient condition to cause a fire. Because if that were the case, we would all be aflame all the time. So that just the mere presence of oxygen doesn't guarantee that fire will take place. Now, follow me with this, if you will. A sufficient condition is a condition that, if it is met, will virtually make it certain that the desired result takes place. So that if if you have your your uh, uh, necessary conditions around, you have the oxygen and so on, but they're not sufficient to create the fire. You have the paper and the twigs and so on, but what it's going to take is a match or a lighter. It's going to take the flame to ignite the paper and the twigs and so on, and then that flame becomes the sufficient condition to make the fire come to pass. I hope you understand that. It's not too difficult to follow that kind of of, uh, analogy. And with respect to faith, Rome teaches that faith is a necessary condition for justification. You can't be justified without it, can you, Nick? Huh? No. Of course not. I just didn't want you to go to sleep here. You must have been up late last night. What about it, Ben? Ah, Okay. Now, in the sixth sixth session of Trent... Rome says three things about faith. It describes faith in terms of three words: that faith is the initium, the fundamentum, and the radix of justification. Those are the three ways in which faith contribute as necessary conditions for justification to take place. That is, it's the initium that is faith initiates justification. It is the fundamentum, it is the foundation upon which justification is built. And finally, it is the radix or the root of our justification. So that all three of those descriptive terms point out that faith is extremely important. If it's the foundation, if it's the initiation, if it's the root of our justification, then certainly the Roman Catholic Church is not dismissing faith as just so much excess baggage. But the problem is this. As much as it initiates, as much as it's the foundation, and as much as it's the root of justification, if you have faith, faith is not sufficient to give you justification. You need something else beside that faith before you are in a state of justification. In fact, Rome goes to great lengths to point out that a person can have true faith and not be justified. A person can have true faith and commit mortal sin and that mortal sin destroys their grace and it destroys their state of justification even though true faith remains present. So let's make that clear. For Rome, you can have faith, true faith, genuine faith, and not have the desired consequence of that faith, namely justification. That's because faith needs something else added to it before justification can take place. Now, last time I did talk to you about the sacrament of penance being at the heart of of the controversy, and it wasn't the priestly absolution, it wasn't the confessing of sins to a priest, but it was the last part of the sacrament of penance where after the sinner comes into the church and says, Father, I've sinned and it's been so long since my last confession, you do your act of contrition, you do your prayer of contrition, and then the, the priest gives his absolution, but he also gives you works that you have to perform. And those works are called works of satisfaction. Works that must be done to satisfy the demands of God's justice. Now, those works may be as simple as saying as few Hail, Hail Marys and a couple of Our Fathers, or it may require alms giving or uh, some other good work that the church requires. And that those works of satisfaction gain for the penitent sinner what Rome calls uh, congruous merit, congruous merit, meritum de congruo, if you want to be technical. And congruous merit is carefully distinguished from condign merit and from works of supererogation or what we would call supererogatory merit. So, now we have three different levels or three different kinds of merit. Let's start with condine merit, meritum de condigno. Meritum de condigno, Condine merit is merit that is so righteous, so meritorious, that God is required, if He is going to be a just and righteous God, to reward that work. Let me say it again. Condign merit is merit that accompanies works that are so righteous, so pure, that a just and holy God is obligated to reward them because those works merit or earn His favor congruous merit is merit that's not as high as condign merit. It's true merit, but it's merit that is a little bit mixed with uh, some weaknesses and frailties. It doesn't have perfect purity attached to it. It's not so good that it requires God to honor it or to reward it, but it is good enough to make it congruous or fitting for God to reward it. In fact, if we stated it another way, we would have to say if God didn't reward it, God would be acting in a manner that was incongruous or not fitting to the occasion. So do you see the distinction between the higher condign merit and the less meritorious merit, but nevertheless real merit of congruity. And then we have the third kind, which again was at the heart of the controversy in uh, Wittenberg, and that's supererogatory merit. Now, most people, according to the Roman Catholic Church, who live lives as Christians, when they die they still have impurity in their soul, they have not reached pure righteousness, and insofar as they have an abiding impurity in their uh, souls, they must go to purgatory, the purging place, where the fires of purgatory will cleanse those impurities from the soul. And it may take three weeks, it may take three million years, but sooner or later, in most cases later, the, the impurities are so removed that the person can then finally, happily enter into heaven. I talked about this the last time. However there are few people during church history who not only have died without any impurities on their soul, they've died not only with congruous merit to their credit, but condign merit and even more they had enough merit to go straight to heaven without any time spent in purgatory. And among the handful of the great saints, people like St. Augustine, like St. Francis of Assisi, Mother Teresa, people like that, that they have done works above and beyond the call of duty. And those are supererogatory works, works above what is required. And those people accrue for themselves more merit than they need to get into heaven. Now, notice that all through this discussion, center to the discussion is that word merit. And here in this case, these people have been so righteous that they've earned more merit than they need to get themselves into heaven. They have a surplus And what happens to the surplus? The surplus is then deposited in what the church defines as the treasury of merit. And the treasury of merit is the bank account that is placed where it's a depository where the merit of Christ goes, the merit of Mary and Joseph and of Peter and Paul and of St. Francis and St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and so on. Their merit is put into the treasury of merit. And the church, of course, owns the key to the treasury. It has the power of the keys, which is the power to distribute those excess merit to people who don't have enough merit to get out of purgatory. That's what it was all about with the indulgence controversy in the 16th century when Tetzel came to Germany, and he was promising that every time the, the uh, coin in the kettle rang that a soul from purgatory sprang because people were paying money to get indulgences when and it happens that an indulgence is merit from the treasury would then be credited to somebody, somebody's account who lacked merit. Now, what Luther was saying in the 16th century in light of his lectures on Romans was This portion of the third chapter of Paul's letter to the Roman is like a bombshell. No, it's like a thunderbolt, a lightning bolt that crashes against all claims of merit, whether they're supererogatory, whether they're condign, or whether they're merely congruous. That what Paul is teaching us here is that there's no place in the Christian life for any merit whatsoever except the merit of Christ and the merit of Christ alone. Who in the world could add to the treasury of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ? The idea below it is scandalous, and it detracts against the singular achievement of our Lord who alone was sinless and perfect in His righteousness. And so Paul says here in verse 27, where is boasting? It's excluded. It's out of here. Take your boasting and park it in the parking lot because it has no place in the kingdom of God. Paul elsewhere says, Let him who boasts boast in the Lord. That's what we boast about his righteousness, his merit, the grace of God. Augustus Toplady had it right in that great hymn called Rock of Ages, when he says in that song, Nothing in my hand simply to the cross I cling. But I said a few moments ago, dear friends, this really is not rocket science to understand this doctrine. And I teach it to seminary students. I used to teach it to college students. I teach the Sunday school students. I can give them a written test on this, and they can make a hundred percent on it. They can make an A. It's not all that tough. But they get it in the bloodstream to get boasting excluded from your heart, where we might harbor the idea that somehow God owes us our justification, that God owes us a place in His kingdom, that somehow we've lived good enough, no, we're not perfect, but we've lived good enough lives to lay some claim on the kingdom. You know, if you push an Arminian all the way in his Arminianism, where he takes credit for making the decisive act by which he is included in the kingdom of God, he may not want to boast about it, but he's harboring to himself something of which to boast which the grace of God excludes and excludes all together. So Rome teaches grace plus merit. You couldn't earn the merit if you didn't get the assistance of God's grace. God helps you earn the merit, but with that help you still have to earn it. Luther, Paul, Augustine, they're saying all the help in the world will never have you merit anything from a holy God. That even our best virtues, said Augustine, are but splendid vices. There's a pound of flesh in everything that we do. Remember what Paul just elaborated earlier, there is none righteous, no, not one. And that's true even after we're converted. Even then, there's so much sin hanging on to our lives for the rest of our days that uh, we would have very little reason to have a hope of heaven. This is why this is so important existentially. If I have to wait until I am pure before God will declare me just, if I have to be sanctified before I can be justified, I'm going to sleep in tomorrow morning because I have no hope. And I'd have to fool myself to think that I have some merit to bring to Christ. I have no merit to bring to Christ. And so, Paul now in this section asks another question, he says, by what law are these, is boasting excluded? By the law of works, no, but by the law of faith. And now he comes to his conclusion, therefore we conclude. That's a little bit redundant because the word therefore in and of itself signals the coming of a conclusion. But unless we we miss uh, what the apostle is trying to get us to understand here, he doubles it up here for emphasis. Therefore, we conclude. We conclude what? We conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law, there's sola fide with a vengeance. There is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Now, some people have asked me, people who are Philadelphia lawyers have said, how can you say that justification is by faith alone when you still have to have the righteousness of Christ and you have to have all those things? In addition to your faith, faith isn't enough in and of itself to save you. Faith is simply that which links you to Christ, and yet certainly when we say that we're justified by faith alone we don't mean we're justified by faith in anything. That's shorthand for saying we're justified by faith apart from works. We're not justified in faith apart from Christ. I hope we understand that. Yeah, I know you live in a culture that repeats the lie every day, and you know the saying that if you repeat a lie often enough, people will start to believe it. And the lie you'll hear day in and day out in our culture is, It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. Now, there's justification by faith alone uh, in a way that that, uh, Paul never understood it, and certainly Luther never understood it, because faith has an object, and that object in biblical terms is Christ and His righteousness. A person can have faith in in Buddha or faith in Moses or faith in... uh, uh, Mohammed or, or faith in the devil. They might have all have faith. That faith isn't going to justify anybody because it's faith in Christ, and in faith in Christ alone that justifies you. But when we say that justification is by faith alone, what is meant by that is faith, what Paul says here, apart from the works of the law. And when we say that we're justified by faith apart from the works of the law, that means, beloved, that the works that we do have no part whatsoever in our justification. Now, please be careful. I did not say that works have no part in the Christian life. They have a particularly important part to play in our sanctification, in living out our salvation, but as contributing to the grounds of our justification. They have no part in it. That's what the whole dispute is about. Are we justified by faith and works, or are we justified by faith apart from the works of the law? I don't know how the apostle could be more clear I don't know how he could say it more convincingly than he says, listen, this is the conclusion. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. I'm going to just put a little asterisk next to that for anybody in this room who's in all involved or studying this whole new perspective of Paul. Because that whole new perspective on Paul, which is an old distortion of Paul, is trying to argue that both Rome and the Protestants were wrong, and finally, the new perspective guys have gotten it right, that Paul is not talking here about moral deeds, he's not talking here about obeying the moral law of God, but he's simply talking about our justification apart from the ceremonial law apart from the dietary laws, that sort of thing. And the justification doesn't even refer to our being made right in the presence of God and redeemed, but it simply has to do with defining our status in the church. I can't think of many more serious distortions of the gospel than that, and I'm not going to get into that all tonight as an excursion, but just simply say to you, dear ones, that if somebody comes to you proclaiming that so-called new perspective of Paul, run for your life because it's a really serious diabolical distortion of the gospel. Now, another aspect that created no small amount of controversy is that Luther, when he translated the New Testament from the Greek into German, he, in translating this verse… Verse 28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. In Luther's Bible, he wrote that, <coughs> uh, uh, that we are justified by faith alone apart from the works of the law. And the criticism leveled against Luther and the Protestants in their translation of Romans 3 uh, 28 here. Is that the word alone does not appear in the Greek text of the New Testament? That's true, and Luther in his Bible wrote this: Allein durch den Glauben, only through faith, or through faith alone. It's interesting to me that the Nuremberg Bible of 1483 a Catholic edition of the Bible written in German, translates the verse this way, nur durch den Glauben. doesn't use the word align alone, but it just uses the word only, only through faith. The plot thickens. The Italian Bible of the 15th century, sanctioned by the Roman Catholic Church in Geneva in 1476, added this to the text that we are justified per sola fide, through faith alone. The exact same words were used in the translation, the Italian Bible, in Venice by the Roman Catholic Church in 1538. So Luther wasn't the only one who rendered the meaning of this text of Paul to mean that justification is by faith alone. And really, all Luther was trying to do was to ensure that people understood the import of what Paul is saying, because if the word alone is there or not alone is there, the concept is plainly there. If we are justified by faith apart from the works of the law, it's no different from saying We are justified by faith alone. Merit is excluded. Any uh, merit to our works do not contribute to the ground of your justification. Now, I said no merit of our own. Now, there is some merit that is the ground of your justification. There is some good works that is at the heart of your justification, and that's the good works of Jesus. It's the merit of Christ. It is Christ's righteousness that fulfills the law of God. It is Christ's righteousness that fulfills the requirements that Moses gave to the people of Israel. Christ kept the law perfectly every day of His life. That's why You know, I labor the point, you maybe get tired of hearing it, that we're not just saved by the death of Jesus, but we're saved by His life, His life of perfect obedience, because Christ's perfect righteousness merits, under the covenant, merits God's reward. But what Christ does with what He earns is that He gives it to us when we have no merit of our own. That's why the real issue here was what is the ground of your justification? Your goodness, your righteousness, your works, your merit, or Christ's? And that's what the Reformation was about. And whenever anybody, whether it's an institution, whether it's a whole church, whether it's a whole world, begins to think that your righteousness adds anything to the ground of your justification, then that person or that church or that world needs to be reformed because that is a distortion of the gospel. The good news is the righteousness that you lack, the righteousness that you cannot achieve on your own has been achieved for you. And the only way you can get it is not by earning it, not by marrying it. I mean, if you would talk to a Roman Catholic theologian who knows his stuff, he would say, well, yeah, we believe that that Christ's righteousness is at the basis of everything, that He's the one who provides the merit to, to satisfy God and so on. But for me to get a hold of His righteousness, for me to get Christ's merit, I have to merit the merits. Do you see it? I have to earn His righteousness, which... I cannot do. I am a debtor who cannot pay his debt. We are all beggars trying to tell other beggars where to find bread because the only one who can provide the bread of life that we need is Christ. So if there's anything cluttering up your faith that removes your view, from focusing on Christ and His righteousness and His righteousness alone. It's got to be excluded. It has to be removed. Because what you're adding then, anything that you add of your own, you're subtracting from Christ. And you put your confidence and your faith in your performance rather than His. What we, what we need, friends, is Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. You see, that's why He came to the world. That's what we've been celebrating the last few weeks. He came as our Savior, and He saves us by imputation, by taking upon Himself the transfer of our sins, the transfer of our guilt, that then He stands in our place as our substitute to receive the judgment of God, God's wrath upon Him that belongs to me. He takes my liabilities, my indebtedness, He takes my debts and pays the price. And yet at the same time, as I keep telling you, it's a double transfer, a double imputation. My guilt is imputed to Him His righteousness is imputed to me. So that when I put my trust in Christ and in Christ alone, God looks at me, and if He looked apart from Christ, He would see this miserable wretch who has nothing in His hand to bring, nothing to contribute whatsoever to His justification. But no, the good news of the gospel, He looks at me and He sees Jesus. I'm covered by the cloak of the righteousness of Christ. Christ is my righteousness. Is that too hard to understand? But the soul of man is too proud. We just can't believe it. We said, let other people get in the kingdom by grace alone. I'm not that dependent that I can't contribute something. I want to do some, something to earn a peace of my salvation, despair of that thought forever, because there's nothing you could ever do that would be good enough to satisfy the demands of God's law. Only Christ's righteousness is good enough to do it. That's why Paul comes to this conclusion, I conclude, therefore, that a man is justified by faith and not by the works of the law. Or is He the God of the Jews only? Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Now that's an interesting question, isn't it? Let me ask you this, bring it up to date, is God the God of Christians only? Is God the God of Muslims? Is He? Is God the God of Buddhists? Is God the God of atheists? Is He the God of governments? Of judges in Pennsylvania? Huh? If He's God, He's the God of everything and everybody. Just because He focused His redeeming grace on one little nation of Israel to call them to be a light to the Gentiles, which they weren't, doesn't that mean that He wasn't also the Lord God omnipotent over every Gentile on the face of the earth? Yes, of course He was. If God is God, He's sovereign over everybody and everything. If you conceive of a God whose domain is simply the church and not the pagan world, then you're not thinking of the God of Christianity. You're not thinking of the God who is, the God who made heaven and earth and everything in it. And so, Paul asks that question, is God just the God of the Hebrews, of the Jews, of the Israelites? No. Is He not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles too. There's only one God who does the justifying. Some of you remember the old cartoon on television, Quick Draw, McGraw, do you remember that? Anybody remember Quick Draw, McGraw? And Quick Draw had his little assistant, uh, Bubba Louie, huh? And uh, Bubba Louie, every time Quickdraw got stumped uh, couldn't figure out how to solve the crime, he was the sheriff, he didn't know where the bad guys were, Bubba Louie would say, well, Quickdraw, he says, think about it, maybe we ought to try this. Do you remember what the standard reply was from Quickdraw McGraw? I'll do the thinning around here, Bubba Louie. Let me do the thinking. And that's, that's what Paul is saying here. There's only one God who does the justifying. He does the justifying around here. The church can't justify you. You can't justify yourself. Only God is the one who can pronounce you just in His sight. There's only one God who will justify, and He'll justify the circumcised, that is the Jew, by His circumcision. Right? Wrong. The Jew is justified not by His circumcision. The Jew is justified by faith. And when we get to chapter 4, God willing, next week, then Paul is going to show how this doctrine of justification by faith alone is not something new that Paul's perspective brings on the scene, but it is something that has been taught from age immemorial back through the very foundation of the people of Israel going back to father abraham the father of the faithful who was justified by faith and justified by faith alone that's going to be exhibit a next week god willing but in the meantime god will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith doesn't matter whether you're jew or gentile there's only one way you can be justified not by your works but by faith alone." Oh, so then Paul says, do we then make void the law through faith? I've been emphasizing faith so much, and I've been telling you that the conclusion is that a man is justified by faith and not from works, apart from the works of the law. And when I say that, do I intend to empty the significance of the law? Am I now saying that because justification is by faith alone, the law of God is null and void, that now we can dispense with the law since the law won't save us. What good is it? Might as well get rid of it, right? To the gallows with Moses. No, 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 no. We don't make the law null and void. Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. Because the law was never given, dear friends, as a way to justify anybody. The purpose of the law, as Paul will expound later more fully, is to drive us to Christ. The purpose of Moses, the purpose of the prophets was one and the same, to show us our desperate need of a Savior. The law is the schoolmaster to take us to Christ. And the law demands perfection, which is only achieved by Christ. And so if we look at the law, first of all, we see the righteousness of God. Second of all, by looking at the standard of the righteousness of God, we understand that that the law is a mirror that reveals to us our unrighteousness. Our moral hopelessness apart from a Savior... And then the law drives us to the one who is perfectly righteous, that we may put our faith in Him because He kept the law perfectly. It was His meat and His drink to do the will of His Father. He was without sin. His righteousness is measured by the perfection of the law. Paul is not disparaging the law. Paul is not, you know, dismissing the law as insignificant. No, no, no. The doctrine of justification by faith fulfills the law because the law teaches us that that's the only way we can be justified. The person who thinks he lives a life good enough to justify himself, doesn't understand himself, doesn't understand God, And he doesn't understand the law of God. I ask this question, what's the great commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and thy neighbor as thyself. There is nobody in this room. I don't know everything about you. There are some people in this room, I don't even know their names. But I don't know everything there is to know about anybody in this room. But I know this there's nobody in this room who has ever loved the Lord their God with their whole heart. And you won't love God with your whole heart until you're totally purged of your corrupt nature in your glorification in heaven. Now, I look at that law, and the law of God tells me I have to love God with my whole heart, with all my mind, with all my strength, and I don't do it. It exposes me. It strips me. It says, Sproul, you don't love God with all of your heart. And if you walk around in a pious posture pretending that you do, you are the worst of hypocrites because you know that your heart is not 100% sold out to God. Oh, I'd like to be able to say I love Him with all of my heart. I know that there will be a day that I will. I love Him, but I don't love Him perfectly. Neither do you. And if I really meditate on the law of God day and night, it doesn't just hint my need of a Savior. It screams at me. It shoves me, grabs me by the scruff of the neck, drags me, kicking and screaming if necessary to the cross. That's why I say when at the end of the day, that's all you have, folks. And his righteousness. That's all you got. That's all you need. (laughs) Because. By the works of the law. Shall no flesh be justified. But through the works of Christ. Shall all be justified. Who put their trust in him. Let's pray. Father how we love the gospel we need it so much and we love your law for in it we see the beauty of your holiness and though we are embarrassed when it reveals the ugliness of our sin yet without that understanding we would not know our need for Christ so we thank you for the way in which the gospel so ironically, establishes the sweetness and excellency of your law. We thank you for this in Jesus' name.